Hi, my name is Ruben Porter. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church, and it's great to have you on our podcast today. We hope this message encourages you, builds you up in your faith, and ultimately brings you closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Hey, it's awesome to be here with you this morning to open God's Word. Um, and as, as Isaac's already mentioned, um, my name's Hannah. I'm the youth pastor here, if I haven't met you yet. Um, and I count it a real privilege to be here with you all. Um, and this morning, we're continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. So to kick things off, I'm going to need a show of hands. If there's anyone in the room that over the summer break may have started some sort of summer project. Anyone? We've got one, Dave Rhodes Robinson, my guy, good job. Might have been a few things, um, maybe gardening, I'll count that as a project, getting in the garden, decluttering, spring cleaning. Yep, we've got a few more hands there, there you go. Awesome. So... The summer project that um, I've been working on is renovating my bedroom, Um, and I do this because it hasn't really been a summer project, but more of like a six-month kind of project, Um, and a few months back, I came up with this grand idea that I wanted to renovate my bedroom. Now, the first step was convincing my parents that this was, in fact, a good idea, Um, and once they were on board, um, Dad and I got to stripping all the wallpaper. Um, And after that, I decided that it was time for a really good spring clean. Um, I started getting rid of all the things that I'd grown out of, um, decluttering, getting rid of all the things that weren't of value to me anymore. Um, And then I jumped on Pinterest. Any Pinterest fans? Yeah, a few more hands now. Awesome. (laughs) Um, And yeah, started looking up colours and different themes that I could have. Um, And then I started... um, shopping around. I got new bedspread sheets. I was looking at pillows. I even was like researching bed valances, if you know what they are. Um, and then I decided, oh, well, let's go, keep going. I wanted some shelves to match. I started looking up different chairs and bean bags, um, and even new laundry baskets. Um, then I asked a good friend of mine to um, do some paintings that I could hang on the wall, and I was sorting through all these photos about what I wanted to print and frame and hang up. And I tell you, it was the full nine yards. Now, Dad is still finishing off the painting, um, but there have been so many times that I've been tempted to, because everything started arriving all at once, and I put it all in the spare room, Um, and um, there have been times where I've been so tempted to set everything up, Um, the things that I've got, um, that I've stored away, um, but I think there's something really exciting about the anticipation of bringing everything together and seeing my room fully transformed. Um, Once the painting is done, I'll see everything set up all at once and finally see the full transformation. And it's in our passage today that Jesus himself strips back and declutters the people's understanding of what it means to follow him. But as he strips back the layers, we see that in this breaking down that there is this building up. It's a transformation or a rebuilding of what it looks like to be people of God So the last couple of Sundays, we have looked at Matthew 5, and if you're joining us for the first time today in this series, um, it's important to note that previously in the chapter, uh, Jesus was speaking about those that make up the kingdom of God. Um, So he was talking about the poor in spirit, he was talking about the meek, and those that thirst after hunger, are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then he goes on to tell us about our purpose as Christians, that we are to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We are called to be so different from the world that others around us notice, a light that shines so brightly that uh, that people see our good deeds and they'll praise our Father who is in heaven. 
Now, for the crowds listening at the time, all of this talk about good deeds and being a light to the world would have immediately brought to mind questions about the law. Now, the law was passed down from Moses, and it is found in the first five books of the Bible. And the law was essentially the Israelites' rule book for life. It wasn't a case of just knowing the law, but obeying the law uh, that made people righteous in God's eyes, and it separated those who belonged to him and those who didn't. And then Jesus goes on to make a stunning claim that would have been a jaw-dropping revelation for the crowd to hear. In Matthew 5.20 it says, For I tell you that unless the righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, who were the Pharisees? So the Pharisees were a separatist group uh, who prided themselves on being set apart from the culture um, and committed themselves to holiness and obedience to God's law. And they were considered um, the political and the religious elite. And here it is saying that, uh, that Jesus is saying that unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, that you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think that would have well and truly been a mic drop moment for Jesus. And this is where we pick up our verses today. So come with me in your Bibles or on your phones to Matthew 5. Um, we're going to start in verse 21. And so our passage goes right through to the end of the chapter, um, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. So um, just come, follow along with me as we go through it. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 says this. You have heard it said... Uh, To the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, do you notice here how Jesus contrasts what um, what they have heard or what they would have known with the teaching that he does want them to understand? You have heard it said, but I say to you. And he says the same thing in verse 27. In fact, all through this chapter, six times he begins with, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, it's helpful to know that in the first century, uh, people weren't reading the Bibles for themselves. Owning a copy of the Old Testament would be equivalent to like owning a helicopter today. Uh, So it was pretty rare. In the day of Jesus, the law was verbally taught to the people by the Pharisees. And therefore, when Jesus says these words, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he is correcting the teaching of the Pharisees while still validating what the law said. And when he makes these statements, he is making it clear that he is the final and true authority. This is maybe why at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll read that the crowds were astonished at the teaching of Jesus as he was teaching them as the one who had authority. So verse 21 again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone that is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And while don't murder seems to be a relatively easy easy standard for most of us to follow, God's intent behind the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, goes far beyond just killing people. Jesus is teaching that whether you commit murder or are angry at someone, in both situations, we are subject to the same judgment. Here, Jesus is not saying that that the act of murder or lashing out is what makes us subject to judgment. It's our heart attitude that matters. So how do you respond when your kids are playing up and aren't aren't listening to anything you're telling them? 
Or how about when you hear a friend say something to you that upsets you? Or how do you treat your spouse after a hard day of work? And it seems that in the everyday is when this stuff is tested, right? It's easy to be nice in the 90 minutes that we gather here on a Sunday morning, but who are you at the dinner table? Who are you at the boardroom meeting? When things aren't going your way or when people let you down? When life is challenging and the pressure is on? Although don't murder seems easy, these examples maybe not so much. And interestingly, in some of the translations, you will find without cause added to verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister without cause will be subject to judgment. And it sounds like the perfect loophole, doesn't it? Without cause. The only problem is that those words were added later. Some scribe figured that Jesus' words were far too strict and tried to give a loophole to everyone that, wasn't actually, that didn't actually exist. All of which to say Jesus' words here are incredibly challenging. And then Jesus goes on uh, to draw out the importance of resolving conflict quickly and being reconciled to others before coming to the Father. Verse 23 says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that a brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. So our passage is saying that reconciliation with a person that has something against you must take priority even before offering your gift of worship to our Father. Why? I think that has something to do with letting conflict fester. If left unaddressed, it can easily turn into anger. And Jesus tells us here to settle conflicts when there's unaddressed anger in your heart. Look then to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, John Piper defines lust as a sexual desire that dishonors its objects and disregards God. The Bible is clear in its teaching about the sacredness and the holiness of marriage, but also uh, the seriousness of adultery. God's intention for marriage is a permanent union of a man and woman as one flesh. Love is about giving yourself to one another. Lust is about what you can get. Love is commitment and its service. And lust is a transaction where you serve yourself. In lust, we reduce people to objects that can be used. And in love, we see people as image bearers to be honoured and respected. D.L. Moody says, Lust is the devil's counterfeit for love. There is nothing more beautiful on earth than a pure love. And there's nothing so blighting as lust. And when we become children of God, our sinful desires don't just disappear. But our relationship with sin should change. While we were once slaves to sin, now we have been set free and we are called to fight against the temptation to remain in our own sin. Romans 6 uh, verses 1 to 2 says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 
And Jesus leaves no doubt about the seriousness of sin. We see that in the way he talks about how we should respond to the temptation of lust. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now that's not to say grab the nearest fork and jab it in your eye, because even a blind man is not free from lust. While the call to take out our eye may be more of an illustration than a command, the point is that we have to take sin seriously and do whatever it takes to keep ourselves from sinning. If you're a believer and you're sleeping around with your girlfriend or boyfriend, you need to stop. If you are spending nights dreaming about a romantic relationship with someone that isn't yours, you need to stop. If you are going to porn to satisfy the desires of your flesh, you need to stop. Tear it out by confessing that sin to God. Tear it out by starting each day in prayer, putting on the full armor of God. Tear it out by sharing that struggle with someone in our church family that you trust, asking them to go into battle with you. And tear it out by taking a stand and fleeing temptation itself. Jesus continues on in verse 31 saying, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. A certificate of divorce in the ancient world gave women the right to remarry. And this reflects the fact that divorce and remarriage uh, was widely accepted and practiced in the first century world. But I say to you, indicates that Jesus wants to correct their understanding on this topic. Now, Pastor Isaac looked more in depth at divorce um, in our Better Now series last year. Um, And a few of the points that he drew out uh, were that divorce wasn't part of God's original design. And so first, let's be striving to not let marriages fall apart at all. That we should... We shouldn't just jump to the claim, well, divorce happens. Let's first clarify that divorce is a last resort, a concession that was made in recognition uh, that the sin in the world sometimes means divorce is necessary and that it should never just be the norm, especially in the lives of followers of God. But I encourage you to check out Isaac's full message on the Crossroads YouTube channel. Look then to verse 33. Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to do is simply, uh, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. So here Jesus is talking about a practice that was uh, common in the Old Testament times. Taking an oath to convince someone uh, that you were either telling the truth or that you would keep a promise. And people would make vows swearing to God. So anyone who um, broke an oath that was made in God's name would not only face punishment from society, uh, but also be accountable before God himself. But yet again, the religious authorities tried to create a loophole uh, to get away with being deceitful and get out of their promises while maintaining their outward righteous appearance. Uh, People would instead uh, make vows not by God's name, um, but by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or some other thing. And when they broke their promise or didn't fulfill their vows, they would set aside their feelings of guilt because they believed that their vow didn't have to be kept because it wasn't made to the Lord himself. 
Then, ironically, Jesus uses his own divine name and authority. But I say to you, make no oath at all, but rather simply let your statements be yes or no. In other words, just tell the truth and stop deceiving one another by trying to get out of your agreements and quit trying to add extra stuff to validate what you're saying. As believers, our character should be of such integrity that our words can't be believed without an oath, or that can be really um, believed without an oath. And the book of James reiterates these words, and he puts specific emphasis on the command, introducing it with the words, above all. Uh, James 5.12, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything. All you need to say is simply yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Then we go on to verse 38 and 39, which says, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye tooth and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, Jesus here is addressing what was known as the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And essentially, um, it is saying that a person should be punished with the same crime that another person inflicted on them. So in the Old Testament times, this was God's way of maintaining some sort of justice system um, and a way of getting rid of evil from among his people. And often when we read the words eye for an eye, we see it as a really harsh punishment. But the actual reason that God gave this law was to prevent inappropriate punishment. It was to make sure that the penalty accurately fit the crime rather than exceeded it. Human nature is to seek personal revenge and retaliate plus one. In other words, if you slap me, I'll punch you. Or if you stab me, I'll shoot you. And this pattern of revenge is what turns petty insults into riots or minor crimes into wars. God's teaching about an eye for an eye was meant to limit violence and not encourage it. And Christ's teaching on this matter reveals his true intent, um, the true intent that God has for his people. He teaches us that we're not to be vengeful. In fact, we are to avoid and resist evil altogether. Scripture tells us uh, to not pay, repay evil. Uh, scripture tells us we are to pay, repay evil with good. Paul says in Romans 12, "Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, "It is mine to avenge; I will repay," says the Lord. And Jesus himself lives, lives this out beautifully. In the most testing time of his life, he displays this passage in its fullness. And Peter writes of Jesus' example. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And like Jesus, we are to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. We have to understand that God is in control, that he is just, that he sees every offence against every one of his children, but it is his to make right. What would it look like if our response to those who wronged us, instead of seeking revenge, was showing them love? We would serve them, we would forgive them, we would pray for them, and we would show generosity towards them. It would look pretty radical to me. Then look at what Jesus says in verse 43. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those that persecute you. 
A somewhat straightforward teaching, and yet to put it into practice embodies one of the greatest challenges imaginable. Now, I think it's safe to make a general assumption and say that most of us are pretty good at loving people who love us, loving those who have similar values, those that make us feel good, or those that are maybe good at returning the favour. But what about loving those that are different to you? What about loving those that can't pay you back? What about those that disappoint you? Or what about loving those that even despise you? A bit further down in Matthew 5, um, in verse 47, Jesus continues, And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? If we simply love the people um, who it's easy for us to love and then expect God to take notice, we're really missing the point. Jesus is saying that if we truly want to be one of his children, we must go above and beyond what is typical, what is expected, what is easy, or what is even natural for us to do. Do you wake up in the morning praying for those that persecute you? When you lay your head on your pillow at night, are you thinking of all the ways you can love and serve and bless your enemies? And this leads to a final and crucial observation. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus um, is, is not only revealing the depth of God's law, but he speaks to the heart, not just the heart of the law, but to your heart and to my heart. Listen carefully to what he says, verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Verse 28. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her, with her in his heart. The Pharisees were only concerned about the act of murder and the act of adultery. But Jesus is saying that it's the desire in a person's heart or a person's mind that's what truly matters to God. And this is why Jesus confronts the Pharisees. He says in Luke uh, chapter 16, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. And again in Matthew, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to the people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And before I stripped the wallpaper in my bedroom, on the outside it still looked in pretty good order, but it was when I stripped it that it revealed all the nicks and the imperfections that were underneath from old art that I'd hung up, as well as general wear and tear. And this is what Jesus was observing among the religious leaders of the day. Jesus had issues with the Pharisees' legalism and their self-righteousness. For them, it was about how they appeared on the outside. Everything looked shiny and clean. But once you pulled back the wallpaper or stripped back the layers, you see that they too were full of imperfections. Outward truth, but inward deceit. Outward purity, but inward lust. Outward love, but inward indifference. Outward religion, but inward hypocrisy. And this is the reality of sin. As the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Left to our own, we can't save ourselves. Left to our own, we can't cure our own souls. Left to our own, we can't make ourselves right. But this is the message of the kingdom. People, there is good news. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching, teaching of the law shows us that the law isn't just another thing to make us work harder or do better. No, the Sermon on the Mount is a mirror revealing to us our need for a saviour. In Jesus, there is good news of great joy to all who believe, through faith and through trusting in him. When we believe, his death is now our death, his life is now our life, his righteousness is now our righteousness. And it is not only the righteousness that clears away all the mess, but it transforms us and makes us new. As Christians, instead of embracing sin, we put sin to death. Instead of harboring resentment and anger, we walk the road of forgiveness. Instead of using words to get people to like you, we stand secure in the acceptance of God. Instead of striving towards religious practices, we rest in the righteousness of God. And instead of life revolving around us, it revolves around others, wanting what God wants and living to glorify him. I'll invite the worship team back up now. It's clear from this passage that we are called to live to a higher standard, one that maybe seems out of reach and unrealistic, but it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can be enabled to live this way. Here, Jesus touches on the root issues regarding anger, adultery, divorce, oaths and vows, retaliation, and loving our enemies, all focused on issues of the heart. And you may be sitting here thinking, yeah, that's cool, Hannah, but you don't know my situation. Or you want me to love those that have wronged me? You've got to be kidding. But this passage makes it clear the standard that we are to live to. And you're right, I don't know what you're going through. But we serve a God who understands and empathizes with you. And it is because of Christ's work on the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to live to the standard he calls us to. And we also see in today's passage the depth, the beauty, and the profound implication of Jesus' teaching. These teachings have the capacity to completely transform a community of people. We can never live up to God's standard, but instead he gives those who are his new hearts, hearts that hunger and thirst for true righteousness. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your truth, Lord. And we just really thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, that as we go through this passage and we read how challenging this can be, um, what that really looks like to live out, we have no idea, Lord. But we thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to do so. I pray, Lord, that, um, that we would keep our hearts in check with you, um, that it's not just the act of the things that we do that go against you, Lord, but it's our heart posture. And Lord, would we have heart postures that seek you, that seek you wholeheartedly, Lord, and that find you. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Crossroads Church Podcast. If you'd like any more information on our church, how to give, or after this message you'd like to talk to someone, you can find everything you'll need to know on our website, crossroads.co.nz. Make sure you subscribe to this channel to keep up to date with new content, but thanks again and we'll catch you soon.